Well, uh, this morning you received a little um, pamphlet, really a little trifold, and it's about surrender together love. And um, so this has been something around Lakeland forever and ever. So if you're new around here, you'll be like, oh, okay, cool. Now I know just as much as everybody else. So that'd be great. So you're going to get a dose of this. This is what we're going to go through. So um, we're going to begin then to, so you can follow along. You don't have to turn it in. There's no test or anything. If you're like, I'm cool with the brochure, good. You can leave it on the table. You can take it home, whatever you want to do. So it just describes how we do things. And I'll get to that in a moment. So we're going to begin then with three passages from the Apostle Paul, three different letters that Paul wrote to the first church, okay? So, and I'm going to ask you guys to kind of jump in here with me uh, on a few words. So let's go to the first letter is out of Colossians, Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, and it's uh, chapter 1, verse 10, and I'm reading out of the New Revised Standard Version, uh, which is about a 1980s uh, version. It's a rather scholarly version. It's real straight ahead. So NRSV is where we're finding this. And here's what Paul says. We drop in on the middle of a sentence, uh, chapter, 10, or chapter 1, verse 10. We have not ceased praying for you, Paul says, and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So that you may lead lives worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him as you bear fruit in every good work and as you grow in the knowledge of God. Lead lives worthy. That's the part I want to focus on in all three of these passages. So here we go. So that you may be filled with the knowledge of God, God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may, join me, lead lives worthy of the Lord. Yeah? So... The goal is to lead a worthy life of the Lord. Okay, second passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verses 11 and 12. So this is Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica in Asia Minor back in the first century. And we jump in, we find the same thing. Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, because he was in jail, I, there, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy. Say it with me. Lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another, one another in love. Wait, did I just read the Ephesians passage? I did. I'm back up to first. What did I do? Did I just jump around? I'm starting over on First Thessalonians. I don't care. First Thessalonians chapter 2. As you know, we dealt with each one of you like a father with... Yeah, I didn't read this at all, did I? Okay, First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. As you know, we dealt with each one of you like a father with his children, urging and encouraging you and pleading with you to lead a life worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. All right, now Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, Paul says, I beg you to... Lead a life worthy of the calling of which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love. So, um, it's important to get the translation down on this, like which version do you use? Because these were all written originally in Greek, right? And uh, first century, the year's about 48 AD, give or take a decade or something around there, because Paul's writing these letters. And in, in my version of the Bible, translation of the Bible that I was raised on when I was a teenager, it was the New American Standard Bible. And the New American Standard, I still like better because it said, walk in a way worthy. 
And I like the idea of the motion of walking away worthy. And it's important, and whatever translation you choose, that you kind of dig into it. We had an older lady here, Martha, in our early days when we were first starting out. And she said, you guys need to be reading the King James Version. Why, Martha? Because it's memorable. Like, Martha, what you mean is it was memorable because that's what you were trained on. So it's important to whatever you get trained in. If you like New Revised Standard, uh, Garrett likes New Living Translation, right, NLT. And uh, Adam was just using the English something easy language. Anyway, find one that you like. It was ESV or whatever it was. But, um, so it becomes important. The point here, though, is, is lead a life worthy. So Paul's praying, asking, urging, encouraging, pleading, begging that those first churches lead lives worthy of Jesus. The important part here is to look then at Paul, that he is pleading with these, these new Christians, that he is pleading with them. He hasn't ceased praying for them. He's urging, encouraging, pleading. He's begging even that they would lead a life worthy. So that's important because apparently the Christian life is not automatic. You become a Christian. You confess Jesus Christ. You pray the prayer, whatever it is. You go to church or whatever. You do not automatically become this holy, awesome person. Apparently, Paul has to really, really beg people into it. Now, for all you theologically minded people, you can go out in the lobby afterwards and have a big discussion about justification and sanctification, about how are you truly sanctified and when it happens and all that sort of thing. Needless to say, Paul feels like it's important that he has to beg them to lead this life. There's an urgency to what he says. Lead a worthy life. My point this morning is, is it takes training, surrender together and love, and it gets broken down. In order to bear good fruit of the Christian life, it takes work and it takes training. Christ followers must be disciplined to live out the kingdom in their lifetime. Humility, gentleness, patience, uh, bearing up with one another, it's not a miracle. It's a lifetime of work. So Lakeland has this plan uh, for you and your children, worthy Christ-like humans. That, that's what you're supposed to be going after. And it's called Surrender Together Love. And so first, we surrender our lives to Jesus. Second, we gather into the community of fellow believers. And third, the fruit of love ripens over time. You become a more loving person. We're supposed to become more loving. Surrender Together Love. And that's why we got the placards up here, Surrender Together Love. These are the three symbols of the thing. You can see there's the white flag of surrender you know, and we'll talk about that. And then there's together here that I'm going to stand in front of for all you guys in the center section the entire time. Uh, it's sort of an interweaving. It looks like tic-tac-toe, but if you look at the lines closely, it's like a fabric weaving, woven together. We're all woven together. And then surrender uh, the palm with the marks of Jesus and the high cost of what it means to become a loving person. So let's just start in with this. What do we mean by surrender? What do we mean by surrender? Well, surrender is really all about one's identity. Surrender is about identity. The man, woman, or child who throws up the white flag of surrender to Jesus is not so much somebody who says, I surrender because I lost the battle. I'm a loser and I never tried hard enough and I'm crushed and I'm oppressed by Jesus. No, it's not that sort of a surrender. 
It's a surrender that says, I belong to Jesus. I belong. This is my earth. This is my soil. Jesus is my soil. I've been transplanted. My taproot goes down into Jesus. My source is Jesus. I feed on Jesus. Now, if this is not a disturbing and challenging to you, then I have failed to communicate the intensity that Paul intends here. What does it mean to call oneself Christian is nothing less than a death to self so that one may be alive in Christ. All right, let's just go to a very classic passage to get this point across. The 23rd Psalm. Maybe, maybe the most universally known passage in all of the Bible, even by people who don't go to church. Here it is. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Psalm 23. Wonderful words. Beautiful imagery. Great poetry. Unfortunately, these days, I only hear these words at funerals. And I'm the instigator. I bring these words to a funeral. So that people who maybe never even went to church can say them together. And believe it or not, when we start saying, I hand out a piece of paper and we start beginning to say, the Lord is my shepherd. Man, I mean, they're all on it. They've got it. Huh. Obviously, those who gather at the grave of a friend or a loved one at this point in life are reminded that they do not have a leg to stand on. Surrender is all you have left when you stand at the graveside. Yeah? On the other side of death, there is only the good shepherd. Everyone has to admit that they are not captain of their own ship or master of their own soul when they're facing the end. In Europe, there is 2% church participation. 2%. 40% of Europeans go to funerals at church. 2% go to church, 40% show up for a funeral. Why is that? Psalm 23. There's nothing left. Nobody's master or captain at that point, are they? It's too bad it has to get to that point of surrender, isn't it? It's too bad. Facing eternity, we have to say, I either belong to Jesus Or I belong to the dirt. I take the big dirt nap. Or as the famous existentialist Bertrand Russell once said, when you die, you rot. And that's it. You just become a part of the big fertilizer plan. Or you've lived for something greater and you go on to that greater part of being with Christ. The earth swallows up. Humanity shouts for Invictus. I am captain of my own ship. That's why this is about identity. Surrender is all about identity. Who do you belong to? Now that you are still on your own two legs, you have the opportunity to know what your identity is. Who do you belong to? The sheep know the shepherd's voice. Surrender means we cannot earn our way to heaven. Life is a gracious gift. It is a gift from a good giver, not a begrudging curmudgeon. 
Surrender means we live our, our lives out in a story, and it is that same story that we find in the Bible. Why is the Bible the most popular book? <laughs> it's simple. It's a book about people. And let's just admit it. For probably over half the book, they're all pretty trashy people. In other words, they're just like you and me. <laughs> Offended, are you? And then God comes crashing into all these crazy people's lives in that book called the Bible. And that's why it's our story. It was their story 3,000 years ago, and it's our story still, and it'll be a, the same story 3,000 years from now. Human beings crashing into God and each other and all that comes with it. We live out that story. The Bible is not someone else's story. It is our story. And surrender means we walk and talk with Jesus, and we, we train our ears to listen to the shepherd's voice. And that's why Paul is begging and urging and saying, you've got to work on this sort of thing. Understand who the shepherd is. Recognize his voice. Hear that voice and say, I know who I belong to. I know, I know what flock I am in. Surrender means we give our health, our family, our time, talents, and treasures to the kingdom larger than our own. Surrender means we know who we are when suffering and sadness and we feel alone and when all that comes along. Surrender is our identity. It would be good that we go do our training on this. In this, you'll find the bullets of what it looks like to surrender. You'll see it right in there, about five things in there. Well, what do we mean by together? The interwoven one here. What do we mean by together? The famous 20th century uh, monk, Thomas Merton, he said this. No one goes to heaven all by themselves. Thomas Merton, probably the most famous 20th century, well, he's been said to be the most important 20th century spiritual writer of the last century. Merton says, no one goes to heaven all by themselves. Now, if you were raised a good evangelical like I was, you say, "Uh uh-uh, Merton, Uh uh-uh. I have a personal relationship with Jesus. I am my own church. Personal salvation, man. Oh, yeah. Is that right? Okay. Like it or not, all of our lives are interwoven with the lives of other people. It is the way society works. It is the way human beings work. I suppose a year or two of mask wearing has probably drove this point home that we are all dependent upon each other. You may not like it, but we live in a society. We all are accountable to one another, and we have to put up with it. We sure like to think of ourselves as these independent souls, don't we? But humans are social beings. We are those chattering monkeys (laughs) who have learned how to get along. Okay, maybe not too well all the time anyway. We are those people in community, inextricably woven together. Right? Social beings. I was at a wedding last week, and I shook hands with an older gentleman, very dignified older gentleman, who was uh, in a wheelchair, and he wore one of those blue naval caps with his ship upon it, the name of his ship. And I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of his ship that he obviously served on. And I shook his hand and introduced myself, and he introduced himself. 
and a very wonderful, dignified, gracious soul. So later at the wedding, I spoke with another man during the reception, and uh, who's probably a little closer to my age, and we were speaking together of culture and racism and polarization and all the kind of little current stuff that you chit-chat about, you know, and we were uh, talking about that sort of thing. And then somewhere in there, uh, I said something along the lines of, well, we're all citizens of the same country. We're all citizens of the same country. And the man paused, and he looked far away. And then he said to me, my father would say, all I ever wanted to be was a good citizen. And then he pointed out his father, and it was the man in the wheelchair. And uh, they're both black. And then the man standing in front of me said, good citizen. Not really to anyone in particular. We are a country of citizens, or we are not a free country. We are a country of citizens, or we are not a free country. That is the one thing we are. Jesus says this, a new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. John chapter 13 Verses 35 through 34 through 35. Yeah, the church is a funny business, isn't it? Because we do not really choose who gets to join Lakeland. So, I mean, I know we all kind of like people get up and they do this membership full participant thing and all that. But, but really, you know, it's not like your health club where you say like, oh, I don't go to that one, so I, I go to that one. Or it's not like in your neighborhood. Somebody could be living two doors down and one day the movie, movie van shows up and you say like, Wow. What were their names? I never met them. I don't know. They kept their grass cut. And we don't know. You know, but at church, we all get thrown together like some sort of fruit salad. We are all tossed together into this place called Lakeland. As with every other church around. And you can't do anything about it. That is the body of Christ. We all eat of the one loaf and drink of the one cup, figuratively speaking. This is my body. This is my blood. We are either together or we are not Christians. Private Christian is an oxymoron. There is no such thing. We also belong to the world. Together means we find friends for the journey. Together means we stand before God and we worship the one God. There are no differences before the altar of God. Together means we work out our differences. We are handcuffed together, everyone, with Jesus right in there with us. Together we laugh, cry, serve, celebrate, and we do life together. I still meet with the same old men who were once young on Tuesday mornings as we have done for decades We used to study together how to raise our children. I don't know how many months, maybe it was even a year or something, we studied on whether or not we should spank as new dads. Oh, man, how we labored over that. Now, now we get together. We get together and uh, we talk about graduations and careers, marriages, 
And maybe, Lord willing, someday we'll sit around and talk about, like, how do you be a grandparent? There's no spanking in grandparenting. You just hand out candy and $5 bills and then send them home. (laughs) High on sugar. That's all there is to it. Sounds easy to me. Have another ice cream sandwich, kid. So maybe we'll get to do that. We're either together or we're not Christians, everyone. That's what the catechism says. We're either together or we're not Christian. That's what we are. Well, what do we mean by love? Well, once again, perhaps arguably one of the most famous passages in the Bible. Once again, people who don't even go to church have heard it somewhere, maybe at a sporting event or whatever. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. It's worth saying along. Here's come Join me, all right? Let's do it again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. John three sixteen, And then we come to love. Love is very expensive. If you don't hear anything else out of that passage, you hear that, that it's expensive. Extremely expensive. Love is so very expensive. It costs, and it costs dearly. I had this thought about this, like... Um, and it's a little thick, so once again, you know, discuss it amongst yourselves later. I, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is a way of describing the one God. Don't, don't get it flipped around, okay? There is one God. And when we try to describe that one God, we describe God as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One third, one persona, one idea of that God came down and was nailed to a cross. Can you imagine, just even philosophically, ontically, however you want to phrase it, can you imagine the entire idea that this God, the concept of God, would actually come and be put to death? Out of why? Love. That's some deep stuff. It's thick. It's so thick. It's hard to even sit around and talk about. Love costs. And God loves us. And that's sort of the end of the discussion right there, isn't it? I was meditating on a uh, really um, uh, ancient, obscure author that hardly anyone's heard of. uh, A Christian monk from the 4th century in the Egyptian desert, and his name is Evagrius Ponticus. It's just sometimes fun to say the name Evagrius Ponticus. There's something fun about saying Ponticus. I'm not sure what it is. There's something weird. Evagrius Ponticus from the 4th century in the Egyptian uh, desert. Just say the words Evagrius Ponticus. Here we go. Evagrius Ponticus. Like, see, did they kind of give you the jolly? So, uh, and I was reading Evagrius, and he said something that just stopped me dead in my tracks. This is what Evagrius said, and it's a little ancient sounding, so, so focus on it, okay? I'll put it up on the screen here. Here's what he said. Just as death and life cannot be shared in the same time, okay, get that down. Death and life can't share the same time. You're either dead or you're alive. Just as death and life cannot share, be shared at the same time, so also it is an impossibility for charity 
to exist with anyone along with money. Just like life and death can't share the same space, charity and money can't share the same space. For charity not only gets rid of money, but even this present life itself. When Evagri says charity, he means love, the love of others. It's so, not so much his, his bold claim that love and money cannot exist together just like life and death cannot exist together. It's the rationale behind it when he says life gets rid of, uh, love gets rid of money, even this very thing we call living. That's heavy stuff. Now, I know what you might be thinking at this moment. You're like, wait, I thought you're, was this a love talk or is this a money talk? It's a money talk. Is it now a money talk? I thought it was a love talk. What happened to the love thing? Are we talking money now? Well, that's easy. It became a money talk when I said the words love costs. You see, I think when we hear the words love cost, I think we just imagine something that maybe will never happen. That somehow we're going to have to die for the sake of Christ and that that love is going to be so costly it's going to cost us our life. So then we just dream up something like, okay, I'm traveling in the Middle East and suddenly our tourist van gets hijacked by some jihadists. And then they tie my hands behind my back and they put a hood over my head and they put a gun to my head and they say, you will confess, Sharada, that Allah is there is only one God and Muhammad is his prophet. Not Jesus. Either say it or I'll shoot you. And then you die for your faith. And you're a martyr. That's what we think when we think love costs. Yeah. Which will never happen, probably. Instead, here's what love costs really looks like in the most practical sense. What, what really is going to happen is you're going to be asked to go to a fundraiser. A fundraiser where comfortable, well-heeled suburbanites are asked to a fundraiser for an inner-city ministry that's reaching out to economically fragile students who are way behind in school, even beginning in kindergarten. And they'll, they'll tell you all sorts of statistics, and you'll hear stories about the plight of the at-risk people. And there'll be statistics and so forth, and that they'll likely drop out of school because there's no one there to support them. They'll be unemployed. They'll have no lasting or stable relationships. They'll be probably raised and steeped in violence because that's the only way they've ever been taught. They'll perpetrate crime most likely and end up dead before they're age 25. And then the pitch person will get up and they will ask you for a donation for the ministry. And all of us well-heeled suburbanites will silently, politely, moan and do a little eye roll deep inside and try to figure out how little we must give to save face and make our conscience feel good. Has that ever happened to any of us? Sure. Not the jihadist thing. Love costs. What we also have known is Evagrius himself was once a very rich man and very powerful. And he had this title and he had prestige. And he was involved in politics up by Constantinople in Asia Minor. 
and he fled to the desert in Egypt and he began to live a life of prayer. What changed Evagrius? What changed him? What would make him say that, that, that money and charity can't be together just like life and death? Prayer. I'm not just talking any prayer. I'm talking a life of prayer. I'm talking like monk prayer. I'm talking about like you memorize all 150 psalms in the Bible and you say them seven times a day in the middle of the night, while you work, while you walk, whatever you do. You pray like Jesus, who Jesus also knew the psalms. The rabbi knew his scriptures and they were most likely memorized. The law was, the psalms were. And they prayed them throughout the day. Jesus prayed throughout the day. This was the way it was. Prayer was a lifestyle. Prayer was a spiritual discipline. Three times a day, my alarm goes off on my phone and challenges me to pray the divine hours, the holy office, the the daily office. Now, I know what you might be thinking at this moment. You're like, hey, wait, man. I thought this was a love talk, and then I thought it was a money talk, and now it's a prayer talk. What talk are you doing? What are we talking about? Well, once again, back to the 4th century, same time as the Vagrius Ponticus, is Anthony the Great. Anthony the Great. Anthony says, prayer creates a compassionate heart. 16th century ago, Anthony did not explain how charity creates a, uh, a compassionate heart. He didn't explain it. He just said it. 40 years ago, spiritual author Henry Nouwen said the same thing, that solitude, silence, and contemplative prayer, prayer creates a compassionate heart. It will change your heart praying. Nouwen didn't explain why, but he gave it a little bit of an attempt. He said, you got to die to your neighbor. As a matter of fact, all the, the great and ancient spiritual authors that I've read, they all say the same thing, that that prayer will make you a compassionate person. And then they have all said the same thing. I don't know why. I don't know how prayer makes you a compassionate person. The great spiritual giants of the Christian faith do not know how prayer creates a compassionate person. But me, I have figured it out. And so even though all the great spiritual authors don't know the answer, I do, and now I'm going to give it to you. So here we go. It was funnier for a service, Garrett. I, I think praying the Psalms are the same prayers that Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed these prayers. When you pray the Psalms, you pray the Psalms that are written by the hand of God, by the heart of God, and prayed back to God. And you enter into the mind and the heart of God Himself. And you gain the heart of God. God loves. And when you pray the prayers of God, you begin to love too. That's not so complicated. It's kind of a no duh, actually. That's probably why the old guys didn't say it. The Holy Spirit, it calls us to action, a costly action. When we love, we welcome the stranger. We entertain angels unaware. When we love, we seek reconciliation. And I'm talking about race. 
We come alongside the oppressed. We share God's story that's inside of us because we can't help it. It's just outpouring. It's what we live. It's, it's what we do when we put one foot in front of each other. We walk a story. It's our soil. When we love, we capture a mission. We have a calling. We know what our life is all about. That, everyone, is love. That's our catechism. Surrender together love. Surrender together love. It's a fairly straight-ahead, easy concept, and that's why it's a good catechism. It's what we do as a church. It's what we're called to do. It's what new people get challenged to say, will you enter into this journey? May we not lose heart. Paul himself had to beg and urge and pray without ceasing. This was his his vibrant power while he's sitting in a jail cell. He's praying for those Christians. He's praying for us. Will you not live this life? Will you not train and discipline and work toward this? Will you not become those people? Because I'll tell you this. The past 2,000 years, this changed the world. Oh, yes, it's easy to say it went bad here and it went bad there. But the overwhelming witness is the world has changed because of Christianity for the better. This is the sort of thing that you and I are being asked to do, to surrender, come together, and love. And it will change the world. And it'll change you and me. There is no greater calling. There is nothing more for things to be about. So may we not lose heart. May we not equivocate or waffle. May we be those Christians who in a polarized secular age go to Christ and live a life worthy of Christ with the one life we have been given. Amen and amen.